Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. Welcome back to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. And today I want to talk about a Texas bill that was signed into law late last year that seeks to do two things. First, it seeks to prevent viewpoint discrimination on social media platforms. And second, it seeks to compel certain disclosures of the platform's content moderation practices. The new law has been wrapped up in court and hasn't actually gone into effect yet, but after suffering some initial legal setbacks, it recently was upheld by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in a ruling that many found surprising and that diverges from an Eleventh Circuit ruling on a similar social media law in Florida. The case is arguably setting up the most consequential Supreme Court First Amendment case since New York Times versus Sullivan, which was decided in 1964. And as Charlie Warzel of The Atlantic recently put it, The case is a battle for the soul of the internet. Now, before I bring in our two esteemed guests for today's show to break this all down, I want to set a foundation for our listeners by reading to you all some relevant portions of the Texas law. The law regulates social media platforms with 50 million or more users, and it has two main provisions. First, it says that a social media platform may not censor a user, a user's expression, or a user's ability to receive the expression of another person based on the viewpoint of the user or another person. And in this context, it defines censorship by meaning to block, ban, remove, deplatform, demonetize, deboost, restrict, deny equal access or visibility to, or otherwise discriminate against expression. And the second thing the law seeks to do is to empower social media companies, or force, I should say, social media companies, to disclose how they curate and target content to users, how they place and promote content, how they engage in content moderation, how their search functions work, and more. And in addition to these disclosure requirements, they must file a biannual transparency report on various content moderation practices and set up a complaint and appeal system for when users' content is moderated or removed. So with that foundation set, joining us today to discuss and debate the Fifth Circuit ruling that upheld this Texas law is Brad Smith. Brad is the founder and chairman of the Institute for Free Speech, which filed an amicus brief in support of the Texas law. And also joining us is Ilya Soman. He's a professor of law at George Mason University, and he has written commentary critical of the law and the Fifth Circuit's ruling. Gentlemen, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. Thank you very much for having us. Brad, let's start with you. What's your read on the Texas law and the Fifth Circuit's decision? Well, you know, I think first we need to recognize that the uh, question of social media here raises a number of very important free speech issues. I'm not sure that they're First Amendment issues. That's a tougher uh, question. But um, we have not before seen something like this where uh, businesses that exercise a fair amount of influence in the dissemination of public ideas have have decided that it's their mission to, in fact, limit the dissemination of, of those public ideas. And uh, the uh, uh, opinion of the Fifth Circuit kind of provocatively calls them censoring and uses that term over and over. 
Well, it's not government censorship, uh, and I'm not sure it's helpful to keep calling it censorship in quite the way the court does, but, but it is censorship. It is an effort to limit opinions simply because people in the platforms uh, don't like them. And one can argue about whether or not they're monopolies or not and so on. I, I don't really think that's terribly relevant. I think it's clear to everybody that we know how many people rely on a small handful of platforms for news to get message out, uh, how difficult it is to navigate. So, for example, I know one libertarian scholar who I won't name because I don't think he's really wedded to this position, but he's, he's raised it. I think he, he finds it uh, at least somewhat persuasive. And I don't know that I agree with it totally, but I think it's at least, again, somewhat persuasive. He, he, he analogizes it a little bit to uh, the situation for African-Americans traveling in the Deep South in the 50s. I mean, they could travel in the Deep South. You know, they could, but it was very difficult for them to exercise that right because of the action taken by private companies with no monopoly power at all. And that might be an, an, an applicable type of analogy here. So I think, first of all, we have a big uh, a speech issue, and that is potentially at least a compelling government interest in fostering uh, freedom of speech. The second thing then is the the interest of the companies is rather interesting as a speech case. And I think the court does a pretty good job of, of laying out some of the problems here. The companies are not being deprived of their right to speak. They can say whatever they want on their platform or anywhere else. Uh, nothing in the Texas law prohibits that. By the way, it's a big difference from like the Florida law that was uh, struck by the 11th Circuit. Um, nor are they being required to speak in ways that we usually associate with, with the compelled speech cases. They're not being required to, to give a statement like in Barnett. They're not being required to put a statement on their car like in Maynard v. Woolley. They're not being required to include somebody else's message in their message to their customers as in Pacific Gas and Electric. Um, what they're really saying is simply uh, that they don't want to have their property used to distribute certain messages. And that really sounds much more to me like a property rights claim, which as a libertarian, I think property rights are really important, but the Supreme Court has not thought they're important for almost a hundred years. <laughs> and we have a lot of sort of water under the bridge and, and, a, and a way in which we uh, need to look at things. So it, it's an odd sort of First Amendment claim um, to, to suggest that they're being you know, compelled to speak in some way. Uh, and, and I guess the third thing I would say just right off the top, just to kind of set the stage and then then not try to monopolize our little conversation here, but is there's a lot of discussion I see about, you know, are the platforms more like a newspaper? Is Tornillo versus Miami Herald the applicable precedent? Or are they more like a, 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 a broadcast company, a cable network? Is, is Turner v. Federal Communications Commission the applicable precedent? Um, or are they more like a telephone company? And I think the answer to that is they're like internet platforms. They're not really like any of these analogies. I mean, these analogies are helpful. And as lawyers, we use analogies, but all of these run out. This is kind of a new type of thing. And we think about how much it's changed our world in uh, really 20 years. Uh, I think it's worth you know keeping that in mind. And for that reason, just to wrap up, I was kind of pleased to see the Fifth Circuit say, look, we're not going to hold this facially unconstitutional. Uh, and I, I, the idea that we, we you know, want to allow perhaps at least some experiment and see how some of this actually impacts uh, the platforms and other users and so on in practice may be uh, the, the wisest part of the decision. Well, Brad, let me ask you, because that was one of the curious things, uh, speaking of the facial, facially unconstitutional question, 
about the decision. It is it seems to reject under Article Three the court's ability to review facial challenges altogether. Um, what do you what do you make of that? Well, um, you know, the opinion is kind of interesting. It's got some parts where I think it, it, it if not overreaches, at least puts things in a in a very tough tone. Uh, um, uh, one commentator described it as uh, Judge Oldham's, Andy Oldham, who wrote the opinion, uh, his, his audition to be the first appointee to the DeSantis administration Supreme Court. Um, it's got some parts as well that, for example, attack uh, um, the Lochner era. And, and actually, one of the major uh, efforts of conservative jurisprudence over the last 25 years has been to at least somewhat rehabilitate the Lochner era. So it's interesting to see him, you know, slam into that and, and, take some things that may be a little bit um, uh, stronger than they, than they need it to be for, for the opinion to go forward. But let's put it this way. There, there's no doubt that it's, he wrote some things to catch people's attention. Sure did. Ilya, what's your sense of the sense of the case? I think this is a terribly written opinion with teams with lots of horrible arguments. And at times it is actually Orwellian. Uh, as Brad mentioned, uh, the opinion describes as censorship, uh, what the platforms do in choosing what messages they want to carry and which ones they don't. And it describes as free speech, Texas's efforts to coerce them into carrying uh, messages and uh, posts that they don't want to have. That's obviously the opposite of the truth. What is censorship is when the government tries to control what private actors uh, convey on their platforms and their property. On the other hand, it is in fact the exercise of free speech when private actors exercise editorial judgment in deciding what messages they want to convey and which ones they don't. And that's true, even if the decisions they make are sometimes illogical and flawed. I don't myself agree with all of the content moderation rules that Twitter has or Facebook has, and sometimes their algorithms work in a kind of stupid way. But that's the nature of freedom of speech. I also don't agree with all of the New York Times editorial decisions or Fox News uh, or others. Uh, and it is common for uh, media platforms of many different kinds going back now decades and centuries, newspapers, TV stations, radio stations, and many others to allow some messages, uh, but not others. Uh, now it is said in the opinion and by you know some other commentators, well, this is different because they're not exercising as close a control or are not as intimately connected. But there are lots of media platforms which traditionally allow a wide range of views, but not an infinite range, uh, and are sometimes perhaps inconsistent which ones they allow. Uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Fox News all allow publication of various opinion pieces uh, that go against uh, their editorial line, but uh, they will forbid ones that they feel are to go too far or offensive or problematic in various ways. I think the same thing is true uh, with Twitter and Facebook, both in the opinion and by outside commentator to support it. There is this notion that this is different because these entities are some kind of a monopoly. Uh, nothing can be further from the truth. If you look at survey data, many more Americans get political news and commentary from TV news or from traditional web media websites, about two thirds of Americans say that they get political news and information from both of those sources. Uh, fewer get their information from social media, only about 50%. Uh, and of those who get uh, information from both kinds of sources or from 
more than one, only 11% say they prefer social media. That's from a recent Pew Research Foundation study. So there is lots of competition between social media and other uh, forms of information provision, forms of political expression. It's not even necessarily the case that these platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and so on, have a true monopoly over social media provision of political speech. Uh, these entities themselves displaced previous uh, big firms that were seen at the time as possible monopolies like MySpace. Uh, if consumers become dissatisfied with Twitter and Facebook, they too might suffer in competition. In the case of Facebook, there's already a lot of evidence that younger people, that if people younger than my generation, I'm already kind of getting old, uh, they don't use Facebook nearly as much as people my age or older do. Uh, and Twitter, by the way, is already used only by a relative minority of Americans and even fewer regularly check it uh, and post on it. Uh, 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 I would also add that uh, here, uh, unlike in the common carrier analogy that we might talk about later, uh, here, uh, uh, the part of the service that these firms are providing actually is moderation in that it turns out the consumers, most of them, actually don't want a completely unmoderated space or one where the only moderation is that which is required by federal law as under the uh, Texas law. Even tr Donald Trump's truth social, they reserve the right to moderate and remove what they consider offensive speech. And the same thing is true for uh, other conservative alternatives to uh, Twitter and Facebook uh, like Parler. Uh, so if this decision goes through, and I expect that it will more likely than not be overruled by the Supreme Court, I think the court has already signaled that they hold that view, the majority of justices do. But if it's allowed to stand, it would pose a serious threat to freedom of speech because it would allow government to impose similar kind of restrictions on other media, which they consider big or influential or problematic. Uh, the last point I want to take up, uh, and I know I'm probably going to slightly whine, is uh, Brad mentioned the issue of property rights. I actually do think that there is a constitutional property rights violation here, and that's true not just under what libertarians might want, but under current Supreme Court takings precedent. The Cedar Point decision from last year says that it's presumptively a taking whenever the government requires even a temporary physical occupation of private property, in that case, property and land. Here, you also, the state of Texas is compelling an occupation of private property, media websites by uh, speakers or users that the owners of the site don't want to have there. You can say it's not physical property, but the Supreme Court has in fact said that uh, intellectual property gets takings protection under the Fifth Amendment. Moreover, there is even a purely physical occupation here uh, because uh, the uh, the information and data generated by social media sites is actually stored on physical servers. And the more users there are, the more of that storage space has to be used. So there is a physical occupation here as well. And so in my view, there is a violation of the takings clause here, as well as a violation of the First Amendment. That takings clause issue is not has not been litigated yet in either the Fifth Circuit case or the Eleventh Circuit, but uh, should uh, the free speech argument uh, be defeated. I would expect this takings issue to come up uh, and it's not, and bringing it up does not require going back to the Lochner error or doing anything of the sort. It just requires uh, applying the Supreme Court's precedent, which I think was correctly decided, by the way, uh, from just last year.
Nick, let me raise a, a couple points here. So first, I mean, Ilya says this is not censorship. Well, it is censorship. It's not government censorship, but it's censorship. There's no doubt about that. And what the platforms are saying is exactly we want the right to censor speech on our platforms. Um, and I think we just need to keep that in mind because when we get into thinking about this, you know, libertarians have long, let's put it this way, what is the purpose of libertarianism? Is it to promote freedom or is it to promote a really tiny little government. I think it's to promote freedom or maybe no government. I think it's to promote freedom. Now, for most of the last hundreds of years, libertarians have seen government quite correctly as the primary threat to those freedoms. But it's never been lost on thoughtful libertarians that private sector can infringe on freedom. Certainly, John Stuart Mill in his On Liberty wrote at great length about the uh, private censorship of speech uh, which I think he viewed really as a greater problem than public censorship of speech. I'm not sure he was right on that, but I'm not sure he was categorically wrong at all times and all places either. So I, I do think we need to, to kind of keep that, that notion in mind when we think about, you know, what is the purpose of, of what we hope to do at the end? Now, thoughtful libertarians are going to be very, very uneasy about this because we do recognize the tremendous power of government. We recognize it can be misused. We recognize that historically this has usually been the big enemy. So I don't think there, you know, people would be wise to, to jump into inviting the government into an arena like this. But I do think we need to keep, kind of keep those two facts in mind. What the platforms want to do is censor speech they don't like. And then we need to think about what is the best way to actually promote freedom, not only in this case, but in the long term. And I note that, you know, so Ilya points out 50% of Americans get their news from Facebook. So at least some of their news. 50%? I'm like, wow. From social media generally, not just from Facebook. Well, I've seen the last number I saw, Facebook was in, up in the mid-40s. So I thought maybe you'd see more recent numbers. And I went down to 50. I mean, that's a heck of a lot of people getting their news from one source. I don't know that we've seen that since the days when there were simply three broadcast networks um, on the airways. You know, not all their news, but a, but a substantial part of their news. Again, I think the whole like, question of whether they're monopolies or not is kind of irrelevant. Like I say, if you look in the, the old discrimination cases, you know, Ollie's Barbecue is not a monopoly. It's a tiny little business. Uh, and and the, the bigger question is, what is the overall effect on the ability of, of people to speak? And we know, again, that it, that it does matter. We know that burying the Hunter Biden story uh, that it was buried, and and we and we at least can think from certain polling that has been done that it definitely influenced the outcome of the last election. Now, the fact that something influences the outcome of an election isn't a reason to ban it or require it or anything else. Um, I mean, that's why people engage in speeches try to influence the outcomes of elections. But it does indicate, you know, the importance of what is going on here. And that effort was not an effort to influence the outcome. By speaking or persuading, it was an effort to influence the outcome by discouraging ideas from getting into the public sector, by by hiding them uh, from the public sector. So I think that we need to need to you know think about that a bit more in, in terms of the uh, you know similar restrictions and so on. I mean, again, I wish the 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 you know the opinion begins by saying we start with the original meaning. Well, that's probably good for the Supreme Court. I'm not sure that's always good for an intermediate appellate court, which probably should start with Supreme Court doctrine of what the original meaning is, even if they would like to go to the original meaning right away. If there's no doctrine on point, maybe you go back to the original meaning. And here, like I say, you know, maybe none of the doctrine exactly fits. But I do wish they focused a bit more on some of the doctrine. And again, a lot of the doctrine ha has gone through. I mean, we have lots of restrictions 
on companies that force much more compelled speech. So we have Turner Broadcasting versus FCC requiring that says it's okay to force, you know, cable channels to carry uh, certain providers of content. We have Pruneyard saying uh, it's okay to have a state statute that requires a mall to allow people in the mall to set up sort of a little public table and, and, and express their point of view. Uh, we have a lot of cases like that. And I think, you know, having said a couple of times, I don't think the analogies all go that far. I, I would say, to, in my mind, the best analogy is this. Way back in the day, back before you were born, Nick, and maybe even Ilya, but probably not, if you wanted to, to produce something, you would go down to a print shop. They would have names like Instaprint and Pip and, and Quitprint and things like that. And you would give them the stuff and they would print it up for you. I don't remember ever that there was ever an issue that any of those businesses would not serve somebody because they didn't like the ideas that was going, that was being done there. And to me, that's really what these platforms are. They're, they're quick print shops, right? I mean, they don't, they don't exercise uh, editorial discretion. They say right up front, they say, look, we, we pretty much want everybody here in defending themselves on charges to 230. And I hope the listeners kind of know at least what 230 is, because uh, otherwise we're going to get in a long, long discussion about explaining 230. But 230 is a law that insulates, you know, obviously the providers from certain libel suits. And to maintain that protection under 230, in just sort of a lobbying position, they steadfastly argue that they are not publishers of material. Uh, and that's what 230 says. They're not going to be treated as publishers for things that are put on their platform by other people. So you've got this kind of, uh, you know, dual action going on here. And again, I, I don't think we can kind of just rather simplistically uh, state that, you know, clearly the forces of freedom are on the side of the tech companies here and clearly the forces of evil on the side of the government here. And I, I think to call this all Orwellian is to just dismiss the serious complexities of the issues that people have and that the courts deal with. And I'll, I'll close this thought with one final thought. My big concern is that the Supreme Court's going to feel they have to take this case. Uh, and, and maybe that's right. It probably is. I do know that there's pretty significant differences from the Florida law. So it's not entirely clear you truly have the clean circuit split. But but they're probably going to feel like they have to take this case. It's national importance. And the fact is, I don't think they're ready. I don't think they or most of us, those of us who are sitting here commenting like we know so much, have probably really thought this stuff through enough to have a real sense of, of, of where the values lie and, and which side is ultimately the one that does the most to protect our freedoms. Now, Ilya, I'll, I'll bring it over to you in a second. Um, but I want to go back to what the court says in the majority opinion, they say, and they're kind of echoing what you're saying there, Brad, that they're exercising no editorial discretion. They say the platforms are nothing like newspaper in Miami Herald. Unlike newspapers, the platforms exercise virtually no editorial control or judgment. The platforms use algorithms to screen out certain obscene and spam related content. And then virtually everything else is just posted to the platform with zero editorial control or judgment. I want to push back on that a little bit because if you actually read the law, and read its definition of censor, the law recognizes that they're doing something editorially, right? They say censor means to block, ban, remove, deplatform, demonetize, deboost, restrict, or deny equal access or visibility to, or otherwise discriminate against expression, which is sort of speaking to what the platforms are doing and kind of what gives you a competitive edge if you're TikTok over Facebook over Twitter is how the platforms determine what content gets elevated or gets put in front of you versus versus doesn't. Do you not see that as a sort of editorial judgment on how to make a platform perhaps more engaging to its end users? 
Yeah. Well, a few thoughts. First, uh, not to directly answer, but one other thing that the court does is, is essentially says they don't have, there's no First Amendment right to editorial discretion, really. Yeah, I was going to bring I that dis- up. I disagree with, with the court court on that. But as to what the platforms are doing, I, I think to me it, it illustrates a little bit the the wisdom of the court, A, not making it a facial uh, challenge, and, and B, um, goes to the point I just made of, of thinking about this a bit. I mean, I don't think right now people quite know how, how do you get at the idea of algorithms doing this kind of work? Because obviously, though, the algorithms are overlaid with these kind of seemingly almost random decisions made on a small amounts of, of material to take them down uh, at different points in time. So, you know, it may be that these kinds of statutes need to be worked out over time and th- that they need to get a lot better. You know, when we were considering where to go on this case at, at the Institute for Free Speech, uh, uh, a number of people said, oh, this is, a, you know, these are bad statutes. And, and uh, a point I finally made was, look, they're the statutes we've got. They're the statutes that are being challenged. And you've got to decide, are you going to try to say the government absolutely cannot do this or are we going to suggest that maybe the government should be allowed to do this and maybe the time should be bought to, to let some of this play out? Um, and one other thing that I'll, I'll just note that you were talking, you know, you mentioned when you read the definition, one of the things that really concerns me here, it, oddly enough, it's kind of odd to me that the, the cases have started with what I consider the, the, the I don't know, the weakest case, or which is the content issue. And by the way, I do think the standard is content neutral, which generally results in a lower Supreme Court degree of scrutiny to, to see if the law can be upheld. But the real fears to me that I think people should be worried about are things like demonetizing people and so on. If you want to talk about something where I think the application uh, of the analogy of the Deep South during Jim Crow would really come into play is when you start making it so that disfavored businesses you know, literally can't you know, get cash, transfer cash, do the kinds of things that you need to be in, in business nowadays. Um, and I guess one of the questions would be, you know, if, if you take Ilya's sort of absolutist approach here is, is where's the stopping point on that? Is, is that fine too? That's also probably right. We're just going to demonetize people. All these folks are going to be out of business. If they're in disfavored industries, they're out of business. Uh, they'll have to set up something else, but that might be tough to do. And you know, we, we saw, for example, when the, the parlor site went up and tried to compete with uh, Twitter and the other tech companies ganged up on it and, and in, overnight it was gone, you know, and that's that's a worrisome thing. Well, there is there is the idea that you can think of these Internet companies as on a spectrum, right? On the one hand, you've got the Internet service provider that the Verizon that just gets your Internet up, up and running. You've got uh, payment processors, for example, you've got um Institutions like Cloudflare that prevent denial of service attacks. They don't have any expressive component for it, but they, they, they allow you to exist in the internet world. And then further along on the spectrum, perhaps, is something closer to a social media company that maybe does have an expressive component, maybe, or it's like a Tumblr where you create a community surrounding a share set of values. If you're a Buffalo Bills fan, for example, only Buffalo Bills fans exist here, and you can only have positive Buffalo Bills uh, opinions. So when I'm thinking about it, I'm, you know, you gave the example of the print shop, right? Well, how might that be different than Masterpiece Cake Shop, right? Which has a more expressive. So I wonder if I might go ahead jump then, yeah. in here. 
uh, just a couple things. One is Parler very much still does exist. Uh, they found an alternative uh, host and you know they're up there. They're not very popular, but that's not because they've somehow been forcibly driven out of business it's because not that many consumers like their services. The same thing is true for Trump's Truth Social, which very much exists. And there's some other smaller sort of more right wing oriented types of social media sites of various kinds, all of which most of which at least do, by the way, have their own content moderation. And that leads me to the print shop analogy. I would maintain that in the history of print shops, I bet there were plenty of instances where the printer came in, uh, where somebody came into the printer uh, and, you know, they wanted to print some kind of viewpoint that the printer thought was really awful, racism, Nazism, communism, what have you. And the printer said, no, you know, I don't want to do that. Uh, and in the context of Masterpiece Cake Shop, uh, which you just mentioned, where for listeners who don't know, that was a case uh, where a baker did not want to bake a cake with an inscription celebrating a same-sex wedding because he was, for religious and moral reasons, opposed to same-sex marriage. Uh, the vast majority of conservatives and libertarians correctly, I think, recognized that that was an exercise of the baker's freedom of speech, possibly also of his freedom of religion. Uh, and they and I also very much stood up and said, no, the baker should be able to say no. Uh, and the, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the uh, person who wants to cake bake, they should, you know, they should go somewhere else uh, and get it baked there. Uh, analogies to the Deep South and the Jim Crow era, I think, you know, don't undermine that point because there uh, the discrimination was massively underpinned by the government and by private violence. Uh, if you remove that, I think things would be much different. Uh, I, I think you can imagine worlds where somebody's view is so unpopular that, uh, you know, they can't do anything anywhere. That is simply not the case with people who disagree with the views of these social media websites. There's many other places where you can express your views, some of which, are, as I mentioned before, are much more popular uh, than these social media sites are. Uh, and uh, we have more viewers, more credibility and the like. Uh, yes, you know, Twitter and Facebook are big, but there's actually more evidence that something like Fox News influences public opinion elections than Twitter does. But nobody argues that means Fox News should be compelled to show more left of center views or more other views that disagree with their editorial line. Uh, and the same thing applies here. Uh, final relevant point on this particular issue is that uh, unlike in the Pruneyard case, uh, which Brad mentioned, where there was a shopping mall where uh, the court said California could have a law requiring the shopping malls not to kick people out uh, based on uh, protests or demonstrations. They had uh, part of the reasoning of the court in that decision was, to prune, was that the mall really was open to everybody in the general public uh, without exception or almost without exception. Uh, that's not true for Twitter or Facebook or Truth Social for that matter. Uh, they make you sign a contract before you come in. And among the provisions of that contract are that you are subject to our uh, content moderation. Uh, there are a few, if any, shopping malls that require you to sign a contract before you come in. Uh, and that contract explicitly uh, has essentially editorial judgment. In the court decision, they say, well, you know, that judgment is exercised after the fact. Uh, and so that makes it somehow different. Uh, but as Judge Southwick pointed out in his dissent, in some cases, they actually exercise it before the fact. For example, uh, in the case of Donald Trump and some other speakers, they just simply uh, are banned from Twitter or from Facebook entirely because uh, um, the because the, the owners of the firm have uh, judged that, you know, their expression is so inimical in various ways to the 
platform's values, that they don't want to have them. To my mind, that's no different from Fox News or the New York Times saying, you know, we don't want Ilya Soman ever appearing in our website or our network because we think his views are totally awful. I might disagree with that decision. I might say it's inconsistent or, you know, that I'm not nearly as awful as they say that they might think that I am, uh, but they do have a First Amendment free speech right to do that. Finally, on the issue of sort of private versus public uh, threats to freedom. Yes, I certainly recognize, you know, private actions can threaten freedom in various ways. Uh, but uh, when a private platform or a private owner says, I don't want a certain kind of speech on my property, or I don't want people to enter my property at all, uh, uh, that is not some kind of private coercion of freedom. That is itself the exercise of freedom. Uh, and there, in, yes, in theory, you could have a danger that John Stuart Mill was worried about that you know, there's an opinion almost that is overwhelmingly agreed on by society and purely private action can drive that opinion out. That strikes me as a much less likely or plausible scenario uh, than the government uh, exercising its power to force the same rules on all social media or all media that they think are too large. And I would note that in the mill type scenario, uh, if, it, if an opinion really is overwhelmingly dominant in the private sector, and to the extent that people who disagree with it uh, are shut out, then it's certainly very unlikely in a democratic society that the government is going to step in to protect that highly unpopular opinion. To the contrary, it's much more likely that they will step in to oppress that unpopular opinion more. So when we have opinions that are very unpopular in the private sector, that's actually all the more reason to keep the government out of it, because the government is much more likely to come in and suppress those few places where that unpopular opinion can still be expressed, rather than try to come in and somehow help the uh, unpopular opinion, uh, you know, get more of a foothold. Uh, and if you look at the history of government policy, there's vastly more examples of the former kind where they try to help suppress unpopular opinions than where they try to protect unpopular opinions uh, against First Amendment, uh, or I'm sorry, against private uh, um, uh, dis disapproval or exclusion. Uh, and I would add that that is actually what is going on with the Texas and Florida social media law. It's not the case that they're protecting some kind of unpopular opinion. It's the case that they claim uh, that conservative opinions, which are, of course, the politically dominant ones in the state of Texas, uh, are being uh, too much excluded from uh, uh, from uh, from Twitter or from Facebook or some other platforms, and therefore they want those opinions to be more present. So they're not protecting the weak against the powerful. They're actually protecting the majority opinion, or at least the more common opinion in that state uh, against media firms that uh, on some points uh, disagree with it, or at least on some points don't want uh, some some types of right-wing speakers on their sites. Well, I, I push back on Ilya on a couple of points. First, I think, I think Ilya, you know, so you're, I mean, you're entirely correct, and it's a really good point, to, to just very good prudential and practical point to express that concern about what is government likely to do with this power. I think that's a real, uh, a, a real issue and not one that can at all be taken lightly. But, but let's take a couple things, other things. So, so the masterpiece analogy, I mean, I think, again, that's, that's one that has some persuasive power. But at the end of the day, when you look at the cake shop cases, why are they always cake shops, right? Well, the reason is because you're asking somebody to bake a cake and write on it, here's what I think, right? And that makes it much more like Barnett, like uh, May Willie V. Maynard, uh, those kinds of cases where the government is compelling somebody to, to write something down. And here, you know, the 
Twitter is not being compelled to write any speech down. And you might add the added point that nobody really thinks that because I post something on Twitter, people think that that's what Twitter believes. Nobody thinks. I, I would venture a guess that literally not a single person in the United States believes that. Could be wrong on that, but I would venture that guess that, you know, so I, I just don't think that that is that masterpiece quite, you know, I think it can be distinguished. And, and, and that's what makes, again, this, this issue kind of tough. Also on the question of, you know, are, are, it's not so much whether they're encouraging popular or unpopular opinions. It's the power of, of individuals that many of the people who are being knocked off these sites do not have a lot of power. Um, and so, so it's not really so much, is, is this a popular opinion or an unpopular opinion? Well, that certainly can become an important point, but a lot of these people, you know, don't have any power at all. They're certainly much less powerful than, than the, uh, than the platforms. The Prunier case, uh, again, Prunier could have put up all the signs it wanted to saying, if you come into our mall, you agree, you're not going to do this. They were going to lose that case. So I don't think that that idea that there's this contract separates it. And I think the court is quite right in pointing out that, you know, look, I believe contracts of adhesion, they're valid. Everything else you check that little box. I agree to these terms. Okay. Uh, on your computer. But the reality is that elsewhere, these platforms like the mall and Pruneyard are repeatedly going forth and saying, we welcome everybody. This is America's new town square. Come here. Uh, you know, Oldham's opinion even quote, includes some quotes from some of that sort of marketing material. But then they have, you know, this in this little fine print that you check the box on saying, oh, but we reserve the right to kick off our Well, that's Pruneyard. That's what that's Pruneyard's case. So, so I don't think that's a distinction uh, between the uh, between the two cases there. In, in that sense. Uh, so again, I, I think, you know, some, some very tough issues um, that are, that are require, I, let's put this way. I, I hope the Supreme Court considers them very, very carefully because I think they're going to take this case. And what I just hope is that uh, they do it with appropriate modesty. I'm not sure by the way this circuit had appropriate modesty, but you know. No, so I think the one point we should agree on is that this circuit opinion is not modest and I, I, a modesty is not always a virtue, but in this case, they should have been more modest about making claims, many of which are utterly unsupported, uh, either by precedent or by empirical evidence or even just minimal common sense. Uh, a couple of points on the Masterpiece Cake Shop and Pruneyard. I mean, I think Pruneyard is a bad decision that should be overruled on both the free speech and the takings dimensions, but it is the case that the court made much of the fact that this is open to everybody. and you know, at, at that mall, I think at like the vast majority of malls, there is not in fact a person standing at the gate saying like, you cannot enter our mall unless you sign this contract, which says like- But, you but know, there's nobody at Twitter enter manning the gate either, right? I mean, it would be like if you- So if you no, guy, that's not true. guy when you walked into the mall, sure, I'll bay, and just walked on by him, they would, you know, they still have that issue. And that's what Twitter's got to check the box, but they're so, not really looking so, at So on Twitter, if, if you want to just go to the website and look at things, you don't have to sign a contract. But if you want to post, you do have to sign it. And this is not just a legal technicality. By now, most Americans who are at all interested in sites like Twitter, they know that they have content moderation. They know they have various kinds of rules. Uh, on the, whereas by contrast, very few people, if you ask them, will say like, you know, I have to sign an agreement before I enter a mall, uh, certainly not an agreement about what I will say or not say when I'm there. Uh, and 
Uh, yes, you're you're right, and Judge Oldham is right that Twitter also sometimes had this rhetoric: "We're open to everybody" or whatever. But I think that standard sort of advertising puffery. It's similar to saying, like, you know, we have the best burger in the world that's clearly better than any other burger. Uh, most minimally intelligent people know that, uh, you know, that's puffery. That they're not they're not saying that it's literally like scientifically proven that they have the best burger in the world. And I can say the same thing at least. We, uh, about twi- about Twitter or Facebook's rhetoric about uh, openness. Uh, finally, on, on Masterpiece Cake Shop and the like, yes, you can try to distinguish it. And Brad is a very a clever lawyer, can make distinctions. And Brad is uh, one of the best lawyers we have in the first time in space. So you know, he's right. You can try to distinguish it on the basis that there you actually, the baker is actually writing something as opposed to merely allowing somebody else to post something. But if uh, the law compelled the baker to, uh, you know, include a sign in on his cake that was written by somebody else or even post a sign on his shop uh, that was written by somebody else. Then I think you would still have a First Amendment speech case there and perhaps a freedom of religion case as well. Uh, and uh, uh, it's and it doesn't matter that uh, it, it wouldn't matter even if uh, the baker sometimes wrote inscriptions that he disagreed with. Uh, or sometimes posted signs that he disagreed with because we recognize, and I think Judge Southwick knows this in, in his dissent, we recognize that part of the right of editorial discretion and freedom of speech is the right not just to say, I only post messages I agree with, but to say, I only post messages within a certain range. Uh, the, that there are some messages that I may disagree with, but they're within the range of what I consider to be acceptable. Like, for instance, I might post but on the other hand, there are other messages that I think are, from my point of view, beyond the pale. So I might post uh, or allow mainstream conservative messages or what I think are mainstream, mainstream liberal ones, but not Nazi or communist ones or racist ones. Uh, you know, I might post some exp- expression about uh, sex that I might disagree with, but not stuff that I consider pornographic, even if that uh, pornography is permitted, is protected by the First Amendment. Uh, and so on. And that's a common stance for newspapers, radio stations, TV stations, all these other sorts of organizations uh, that I mentioned before. And it's entirely, I think, within the First Amendment free speech rights and also property rights uh, of social media sites to take the line that they permit a range of speech, but not in uh, not an infinite range or not even as broad a range uh, as would be legally permissible for them to include. So let me let me make one more comment if I, I can on the masterpiece, and then I, I hope that we can in, in our remaining time touch a little bit on section two, the disclosure requirements of the law, perhaps. But but uh, so let, let's suppose somebody had, and, and for people of a certain age, this will be the the kind. It reminds you of the kind of business that Kramer might start on Seinfeld. Suppose you had a cake shop where you said, "Look, you can come in here and bake your own cake." So we've got all the you know the best ovens and the decorative you know little things that help you decorate the cake properly and maybe we'll, you know, sell you great ingredients and so on too. Right. I mean, if you had that sort of thing, uh, I don't think there would be an issue. And moreover, I think, uh, I would not, I would expect that a lot of, uh, that you would find government regulation, uh, and people saying, well, you can't prevent them from, you know, if they're coming in making to make their cake that you've offered this up, that, that, that they can put the message they want on their cake. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but I, I don't think that would be a terribly controversial uh, law to have that. And I think that's largely how, you know, we've operated in a number of areas. 
But um, and also just on pruning, I don't think most people think when they walk into a shopping mall that they can say say or do whatever they want. I think I don't think most people think that at all. Um, so I, I would disagree with that. So maybe we just have an empirical disagreement, and I don't think there's any evidence on it. We'll have to go out and do some polling. What do people think they can say in a shopping mall? Um, but the other thing I, I did want to touch on. Well, I'll let you. Nick, yeah, you know? let me get in because we can get to the disclosure. I want to touch a little bit on kind of the common carrier argument here. So you, you might you might recall the Packingham case. I believe it stemmed from a North Carolina law that prevented um, registered sex offenders from uh, being on social media. The Supreme Court struck that down as being unconstitutional. And as part of the rationale, they they sort of argued that social media is so much a part of our daily lives and it's so much a part of our modern economy that to prevent a sex offender from being on it is to cut them out from an important part of our society. Right. So if you take that understanding of social media's import in our world, and then you ask yourself, okay, well, what if these social media companies decide that they're just going to not let conservatives on their platforms or people who express conservative opinions? Ilya, is there no room for the government to become involved there in your mind? I would say it depends on what you mean by no room, but I think there should be no room, at least no room beyond that, which can pass a very high level of strict scrutiny for them to say that these companies can't exclude people based on their messages. Notice you can make the same argument. What if all newspapers got together and said no conservatives will publish there? What if all uh, non-social media news websites said that? What if all TV stations did that? You can you can play this out in the same way. Uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, in a private sector with competition, uh, that's not going to happen. Or if it did happen, competitors would emerge, as, by the way, Fox News did emerge as a competitor. And, for and didn't that kind of happen with the fairness doctrine, too? The fairness do- didn't the fairness doctrine kind of try to get ahead of that sort of issue? Yes, it did do that. Uh, but the fairness doctrine was unconstitutional and it was repealed by the Reagan administration in the 1980s. I think most, uh, certainly most re- most liberal and most libertarian and conservative scholars would agree that the fairness doctrine was unconstitutional. Even many on the left, I think, at this point would do so as well. So even after the Reagan administration got rid of the fairness doctrine, uh, that didn't mean that there was only left-wing media out there. And indeed, Fox News emerged after the Fairness Doctrine uh, was gotten rid of. Uh, so uh, I think, therefore, that, uh, you know, that that fear, if it's valid, it could justify uh, government control of what all sorts of media publish, including many that are more influential than social media in terms of actually influencing people's political opinions. And as for the decision that you mentioned, I think there's a big difference between the government banning somebody from appearing on all social media of any kind, therefore, again, setting up the same rule for all companies, uh, as opposed to a particular company saying, you know, we're not willing to, uh, you know, give a sex offender access. And by the way, I have said, and you know, elsewhere, I think the definition of who counts as a sex offender is overly broad. And I am concerned about laws that, for instance, bar anybody who's a registered sex offender from living within, you know, a thousand yards of a school or whatnot. Uh, I think that's a problem, but it's a problem because it's a uniform rule set up by the government over an entire vast area, as opposed to just, you know, private individuals uh, making their own uh, decisions for themselves. Uh, And lastly, on, I think Brad makes the interesting analogy of, uh, of, uh, you know, what if uh, there was a rule for cake bakers that unlike uh, the owner of the Masterpiece Cake Shop, 
uh, these bakeries just have let people come in and do a do it yourself message on your uh, your cake. Uh, I think uh, uh, there would be a First Amendment problem if uh, the baker or the owner of the bakery could not say, for instance, you know, we allow a wide range of messages, but we forbid Nazi messages or racist messages or other ones that we especially disapprove of. I think that would be a serious problem. Uh, and I think lots of people would readily see that uh, if such a law uh, really uh, had that effect. Uh, the reason why people are less concerned about uh, or some people are less concerned about the masterpiece situation is today. And I think for good reason, uh, support for same-sex marriage is a majority view. It's widespread. It's seen as entirely reasonable. So the cake baker is seen as a bigot, I think, in some respects for good reason, for thinking that, you know, this form of marriage is somehow wrong or evil. Uh, and, you know, I agree there is bigotry there, but I also think even people with awful opinions have the right to, uh, you know, to freedom of speech. And I would say the same thing is true for social media content moderations that I disapprove of or editorial decisions by newspapers that I disapprove of. And to call it censorship, I think, is both misleading and, yes, uh, Orwellian. The opposite is true. Uh, the compelling people to host messages that they don't want is, is actually the real censorship. Brad and, Brad and Ilya, do you guys have 10 more minutes to keep going? I, I do want to get sure. to disclosure, and I do want to ask yeah. a question about the outcomes here. So if you have another 10, 12 minutes, I'd appreciate it. Sure. Yeah. So, so Packingham, if I could just, I, I agree with you. I mean, Packingham is about the government banning people from, from social media. So it's a different, uh, you know, a very different paradigm. And to me, clearly something that erodes speech and, and violates the first amendment. I want to point right, out, but in the dicta, law, in the dicta, they do, they do talk about the importance of social media. Well, that's true. That's true. And in that sense, it may support, you know, at least that sort of reasoning or thinking about the importance of social media as a means of communication. Uh, but it certainly is not going to be be controlling. But that's a good point. Um, the other thing is, I, I would point out this this law, the text law is not at all like the fairness doctrine. That is, there's no requirement that the platforms assure a diversity of views. There's no requirement that they, you know, if they allow one view to be heard, that they bring another view on, nothing like that. It's rather simply a content neutral provision that says you can't discriminate against certain points of views. And we haven't focused much on that legal standard, but again, his, you know, under doctrine, the, the the content neutral standard typically goes to sort of an intermediate scrutiny and a compelling government interest. And so I think that, that there's not been nearly enough focus and Ilya has focused on it some here today, but I think in a lot of the discussion, a lot of the criticism, there's not really been a, a serious discussion of, you know, is there a compelling government interest and, and how does that play into this idea of, of a content neutral uh, regulation? I think that's a reasonable point that, the level of scrutiny might be lower for a content neutral regulation, but it's still intermediate scrutiny, which is a pretty restrictive standard, though less so than strict scrutiny. I would add also, I'm not convinced, this isn't much discussed in the opinions, but I'm not convinced that this law really is content neutral, because I think there's a lot of evidence, some which was in the briefs in the, in the, in the district court, which suggested that Texas's real motive was not an impartial concern for all speech, but rather specific complaints raised by conservatives, other right of center people, uh, and that therefore uh, the goal of this law is really to boost one side in a political debate that particular platforms may not like or may not like as much, at least as Texas thinks they should like them. Uh, and I think uh, there is a lot of doctrine in the first seminary and others where which suggests that 
the intent of the government actor is relevant in determining what kind of regulation it is. For example, a law that on its face is neutral, uh, like a literacy test for voting or a poll tax, uh, may be seen as racially discriminatory if the evidence strongly suggests that the motive is to uh, discriminate against African Americans or some other minority. And I think there is a lot of evidence that this Texas law is meant to boost specifically right of center. So let's say the problem is, let's say the problem that they are trying to boost right of center views. And let's suppose, and, and I think this is a contestable issue, that that conservatives are being discriminated against on these platforms. They can't seek redress from a liberal state government because the liberal state government will say, oh, tough, we don't care. That's, that's great. We think that's good. We want you put down. And they can't seek redress from a conservative state government because the conservative state government will, by definition, be trying to protect conservative points of view. I, I mean, I just think that's a little bit of a catch-22 that, that proves a little too much and, and, and goes a little too so far in this particular. It's a catch-22 that is inherent in the nature of restrictions on discrimination. Uh, you can similarly say that segregationists who want to promote facially neutral laws to promote segregate, that have the effect of promoting segregation, they can't go to an anti-segregationist state government uh, because the anti-segregationist state government would not be sympathetic to their complaints. Uh, but if they go to a pro-segregationist state government, uh, then that government's laws will be struck down because of their malicious intent. And I think the same thing is true here. So the catch 22, if there is one, is a feature, not a bug. I'm not even sure what you're talking about here, Ilya. <laughs> you're, you're going off the rails here. Uh, well, let's well, let's let me, go on. Yeah, let me, let, me, let me ask about the disclosure uh, section of, of this law. And, it, and Texas isn't the only state to pass a law requiring disclosure of content moderation practices for social media companies. California, I believe in the last couple of weeks, also passed a law requiring disclosure of how social media companies moderate uh, certain categories of speech, including hate speech, which of course goes undefined. And in passing that law, Governor Newsom said, California will not stand by as a social media, as social media is weaponized to spread hate and disinformation that threaten our communities and foundational values as a country. And while he didn't go so far, or the state legislature in California didn't go so law as to mandate um, viewpoint discrimination or viewpoint neutrality. It did, it did, through its transparency requirements, seek in this case, and it's very clear from Newsom's quote, to chill certain speech um, or to put pressure on social media companies to chill certain speech. And I think you might get that same sort of effect in Texas as well, to say nothing of the sort of concerns about proprietary information or in private property. The Texas law says, for example, that you need to disclose how you use search ranking or other algorithms or procedures to determine results on your platform. Uh, but I ask myself, isn't that the whole game, right? Like you're st starting to set up a social media company and the way you get uh, market share if you're a social media company is to deliver content that is more interesting to an end user. That's how TikTok has just taken off because its algorithm has gotten so good at delivering relevant content and interesting content to its users. So by being forced to provide that information to the state of Texas, are you not being forced to also turn over what makes your social company, media company, your social media company, it distinguishes you from in the market? So there's two questions there. Is the one, the chilling effect of, of transparency requirements and also um, the sort of private property interest in your algorithm. Yeah, that, that, no, that's those, that's a great point, and, and it's good on, on on both issues. You know, one thing that again we might think about is is 
to what extent does the court have to view all of this as an all or nothing proposition? Could a court say to the extent the definition includes your algorithms, right? It's a problem to the extent it includes other things. Maybe it's not, um, you know, so, so one can go in a, in a lot of uh, uh, different ways on this. I think you've also Im- implicitly raised something having, has, having said, let's talk about the disclosure stuff that, that takes us right back a little bit to the content moderation issue, which is, uh, one of the arguments that's been made, for example, by Phil Hamburg at Columbia recently and so on, is that we should have rules that prevent companies from keeping lots of private data or rules in this situation that might prevent them from discriminating against content on their platforms, precisely so that government cannot begin to pressure the platforms to allow government to use them for improper purposes. And we've seen a lot of evidence. I think I don't want to make a conclusory you know, statement as to what's been done, but we've seen a lot of evidence that the government has been attempting to pressure social media platforms to censor certain information and that the platforms have been very willing to do the bidding of government, things that government could not do directly. Um, and, and of course the government has a lot of power and over on the left, you know, Elizabeth Warren is threatening them with antitrust actions and so on. And so, you know, one reason that one might arguably want this kind of law is so that the tech companies can say, we'd love to help you government, but we can't because we got a law that prevents us from doing that. And again, that might be another way in which we think about certain types of regulation as actually being something that is uh, oddly enough enhancing uh, a freedom or protects us from from government overreach by setting a legal standard that, that can't be infringed upon. Ilya, do you have any additional thoughts on that before I turn to the so, final question? I don't have a very strong opinion on the constitutional aspects of the disclosure issue. I think it's much less worrisome than the content moderation rules. But I would note two things about the points that that have been made so far. Uh, One is uh, the Gavin Newsom situation should remind people on the right who like the Texas law uh, that two can play this game or more than two. Uh, Liberal states would also be able to impose content neutrality restrictions or other restrictions, especially if part of the court's reasoning is that these things are common carriers or that uh, um, they're, they can be regulated because they're big and influential uh, and so on. So uh, the goal here is not just to protect people against uh, the Texas government, but also against uh, governments generally, including uh, more left-wing ones. Uh, the second thing when it comes to chilling effects uh, and government pressure, I think uh, first, it's kind of perverse to say that because the government can pressure people, we should allow government to pressure them even more and get them to disclose data and so forth. Uh, the proper way to deal with government pressure is to cut it off in the first instance by having, among other things, strong First Amendment protections and also property rights protections so that if the government tries to pressure social media sites or other websites, they can simply say, like, we don't care what you think because your threat is incredible because courts will strike down your measures against us, uh, whether on First Amendment grounds, property rights grounds, or the like. So to my mind, that actually strengthens the case against disclosure requirements rather than uh, uh, says that they should uh, should be done, particularly since if uh, these things have to be disclosed, then it's actually more likely that the government will know what is being done and therefore can identify potential vulnerable pressure points and the like that and actually use the disclosure requirement to their advantage. Uh, so that said, I actually don't have a very strong opinion on the constitutionality of many disclosure requirements. Uh, uh, I think 
uh, if the disclosure requirements really are content neutral, they might at least in some cases be constitutional and it's not an area of law I know as much about as some of the other ones uh, that we've talked about. Uh, and I do worry about the issue of sort of disclosing proprietary information uh, that can then uh, you know, deter innovation or deter incentives for innovation. But I wonder if that's more of a policy question than a uh, constitutional one. So on the disclosure things, I think, you know, Brad certainly has more expertise than I do on that issue with his important work on campaigns finance disclosures that he's done. And there are probably lots of other people who know more about that aspect than I do. So while I have a few somewhat tentative thoughts on that, I'll probably leave that issue to people who know more about it than I do. Go ahead, Brad. Well, I was just going to say, it's, it, it is an interesting aspect because uh, the, uh, <laughs> well, now, now I've just lost my tra- train of thought here. So well, why don't we, well, if you think of it again, if you think of it again, you can interrupt yeah, me. Obviously, couldn't have been too important. <laughs> I do want to ask a closing question of you both. So let's say, well, actually, I mean, the Texas, the Texas law was set to go into effect uh, here soon, but it looks like Net Choice filed an unopposed motion to stay the mandate that would put it into effect, uh, pending a cert petition from the United States Supreme Court, um, and I guess the Ken Paxton. Uh, the attorney general in Texas didn't oppose that. So I don't believe the law will go in effect. I mean, it just depends what the Supreme Court says, says here, I guess. But let's say the law does go into effect or the Supreme Court, Court agrees with the Fifth Circuit and it's ruled constitutional. What does the internet look like? Or at least social media look like? So I'm reading this Charlie Warzel article that came out a few days ago in the Atlantic, and he quotes someone from Stanford Cyber Policy Center who says, these legislators think they're opening the door to some stuff that might offend liberals. But I don't believe they realize they're also opening the door to barely legal child porn or pro-anorexia content and beheading videos. I don't think they've understand how bad the law law is. Uh, I, you know, I'm assuming that We've seen the news articles about the amount of content moderators hired by Facebook and Twitter to um, police beheading videos, um, crush videos, child porn videos, preventing those from getting up on the platform. How how can social media companies handle that if the Fifth Circuit ruling stands and there are states like Texas that have a law like this in place? And how, you know, are social media companies going to have a switch that you can, can, play with at the top of your screen where you get a moderated version of Facebook versus an unmoderated version. I'm just trying to get a sense of what social media looks like. Cause I remember the MySpace area era where things were less, much less moderated. You could even change your pages with your own HTML. It was very spammy. Um, A lot of different sort of content that you wouldn't see on a Facebook or Twitter. So what, what is, what does the internet look like in a, a judge Oldham Texas uh, world. So I am not an internet or technology specialist. I can't know for sure, but I do think that if the Texas law uh, is allowed to stand or in its full force, uh, then you will see a lot of very unpleasant user experiences on social media. One of the reasons why virtually all social media platforms do in fact have content moderation that goes beyond what the Texas law allows because most consumers want that. That doesn't mean that all the content moderation is good or if there aren't some stupid decisions. I, I, I myself disagree with some decisions that I've seen made, uh, but I think a world where 
uh, the content moderation is limited to this very tight space that uh, Texas allows, uh, I think would be problematic. I would also worry that, you know, this would open up the door, depending on how the court reasons this decision, uh, this would open up the door to other kinds of, of regulation of social media content and possibly other content as well. Because so, as I've mentioned before, many of the kinds of arguments that Judge Oldham uses to justify the regulation on uh, social media could just as easily apply to many other kinds of media. And I think most of his attempts to try to say that uh, that it wouldn't apply to them largely fail, uh, either because they're based on factual inaccuracies or because there are logical fallacies in the things that he says or both. Uh, but that said, uh, I, you know, I am, have to be somewhat tentative in that uh, I'm not a, an internet technology expert and attempts to predict the future of uh, internet discourse you know, they're off, they've often failed quite spectacularly. So I admit uh, I could be uh, wrong in some of these predictions, but I still do think generally the lessons of history show that it's much better to leave the development of speech and discourse to decentralized private decision-making than for government to impose one-size-fits-all rules. Uh, and that's especially true in a dynamically involving industry as, as this one certainly is. I, I agree. I mean, it's very hard to know what it would look like. And also I'm not, I'm not the guy who's developed internet sites successfully. So in some respect, this is a question for the folks at, at, you know, at Meta and, and Twitter and, and Amazon and so on. Uh, tell us, tell us what's going to happen. I, I do think that, that it's, it's, it's very likely at least, I would look at it as very likely that, yes, consumers will actually revolt and this will not be a popular law uh, because people will find themselves getting all kinds of stuff they don't want to get. And I, I think that certainly is, is one of the, the, the possibilities. You know, I, it may be that the companies, as you suggested, Nick, have sort of a, you know, moderated platform that you can opt into, or it may be that they do more things where you opt into certain, you know, groups, uh, not, not groups as we, they're sometimes used on the, on the, on some of these sites now, but, uh, we might say, you know, kind of, yeah, well, you know, I, I guess I'll call them groups, but, but they're not like exclusive groups per se, but you say, I want to be on this page that, that doesn't include this stuff or does include these things. I think there's a lot of ability for the companies to do a fair amount of that, to give you, in other words, a way to, in a certain sense, set your own uh, algorithm by saying, here are things I don't want, here are things I do want. But I don't know that for sure. Like Ely, I'm not really a tech guy. So we'll have to see how that plays out. And it's another reason for a lot of these things to be done, you know, on a, on a, uh, not on a facial basis, but on an as applied basis. I think that's true as well of the disclosures things, which we didn't talk about much, but uh, again, it may be, that when, you know, we have lots of disclosure obligations on companies, contract disclosure obligations, labeling disclosure obligations. We force them to put notices up in their workplace and so on. Uh, it may be that when you, uh, you know, get into supply challenges, the companies would be successful in getting a lot of the mandatory disclosure stuff taken out uh, because it did step too much into their, uh, you know, trade secrets or other protected rights, uh, what have you. And I think that's largely the case with how the, how the net would look. So yeah, it, it's a great question. How's the net going to look? I don't know. I think it's very, very possible that when this is done, it's going to be, uh, very unpopular, but we'd have to see. Can I ask a technical question about this? Go ahead. In your opinion, Brad, or for that matter, in Nick's opinion, does the, does either the Texas law First of all, does the Texas law allow for a situation where Twitter essentially says, when you join Twitter, 
you can you have the option of choosing either moderated Twitter or unmoderated Twitter, right? Because uh, if if that's permissible, then it may be that uh, you know say ninety percent of consumers choose unmoderated Twitter, and there will be sort of a little cesspool of completely. Uh, I'm sorry, ninety percent will choose moderated Twitter. There might be a little cesspool that looks like Gab or something that's the unmoderated Twitter, but people who want to use Twitter. Uh, it, it, to reach a vast audience potentially, but with, without any uh, uh, restrictions, you know, they wouldn't be happy. Yeah, and you're right. Uh, back and square one, and I don't, I don't know if the law covers that or not. To be honest, I, do, I, I don't think it does. You know, I've read the law trying to look for any suggestion that that sort of thing might be acceptable, but it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward in saying you can't censor through its definition to censor. Um, whether you can set up a censorship zone versus a non-censorship zone, I, I don't know. I think it's largely silent on that. And that's something that would get litigated if the law goes into, the, into effect, potentially. Yeah. I wonder also whether Judge Oldham's opinion, I think not, but I, I wonder if Judge Oldham's opinion uh, would, would read that um, uh, there's, a, there's a First Amendment right to set up the restricted zone if you, as long as you have an unrestricted zone on your site, my guess is Olden would probably say there is not such a First Amendment right, uh, and that if the and that these the Texas or other states could ban uh, having the sort of uh, zone with restrictions. But you can perhaps imagine a more uh, um, a more uh, what was the term that Brad used a more humble opinion uh, that um, perhaps that um, uh, you know that, that did allow that. So the federal government, or for that matter, state governments, could set up their own social media companies too if they wanted to. But sure. that doesn't seem to be of uh, interest. And uh, uh, and uh, uh, I think that would be a less of a menace than them trying to set up one size fits all rules. It <laughs> sounds like an awful alternative, but maybe you're right. <laughs> I mean, in a certain sense, uh, uh, we already have government websites where the government trumpets its message in all sorts of ways, and some of them do have comment sections. Uh, in sections where you can put up petitions and uh, and so forth, so it's not quite the same. It's not quite the same thing as Twitter, and it doesn't have as many bells and whistles as Twitter has in most cases. But government can do that, and you know I'm not necessarily always a fan of it when they do it, but I think it's it's constitutional uh, and it's not threatening in the way that this Texas social media lies. Yeah, I don't know that it would take off if our experience with USA Jobs or the healthcare exchanges is any experience. Yeah, so the government may not be very good at running these websites. <laughs> uh, historically, government has had some success in doing propaganda of various kinds. Uh, we see Vladimir Putin in Russia, obviously, you know, having some, some degree of success, at least, with, with that. Well, guys, uh, I've kept you longer than I promised. I feel like I say that on every podcast. I'm so sorry. But uh, I had some technical issues getting started here. I'm glad it was able to work out. Brad and Ilya, we could keep going, but um, we'll leave it there. And I thank you both for your time. Yeah, it's, it's fun. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Ilya. I'm, I got to go teach a class now, believe it or not. I have a Friday afternoon class. So see <laughs> you all later. That was Brad Smith of the Institute for Free Speech and Ilya Soman of George Mason University. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleagues, Aaron Reese and Chris Maltby. You can learn more about So To Speak by subscribing to our YouTube channel or following us on Twitter or Instagram by searching for Free Speech Talk. We're also on Facebook uh, at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. And you can email us feedback, as always, at so to speak at the fire.org. We take reviews. Those are appreciated. They help get more ears and eyes on the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening. Mm-hmm.